I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The what? The club. The what club? The book club. No, okay, I get what you're saying. Let me, I was behind and now I'm caught up. Okay. Here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. You might not like us. A lot of people actually hate us. <laughs> people have always hated me. I think I dragged Ashley down. I don't know how that happened. But I think of you as like an angle cuff, a bala band. <laughs> but if you don't like us, just please... Listen to somebody else. We would love that for you guys. We want everybody to be with the people they like. If you like us, we appreciate that. And Ashley reads five-star reviews at the end of every episode. But if you don't like kind of sassy, snarky, kind of mean humor. We're not even trying to be mean. We're just trying to find the truth. I think that makes it worse. (laughs) I feel like the fact that we don't think of ourselves as mean at all is actually much more damning. Well, anyway, we're reading the book so that you don't have to. And then adding our opinion is a small tax. (laughs) <laughs> and as always, if you don't like that, feel free to read the books. Feel free. And if you like us, we, first of all, love you and appreciate you. Second of all, are coming to a town or a digital stream near you. We are doing another virtual show with Moment House on April 27th at 6 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Is that correct? Whenever it's 8 p.m. in Sydney, that's when we'll be on. Yeah, and we did account for whatever daylight savings time you have. So it's 8 p.m. in Sydney on that day. And if you are in New Zealand or another place, I hope you can still make it. We did the best we could, but we simply do not feel like we could wake up at 4 a.m. <laughs> I just don't see it happening. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> and if you cannot make it to the live virtual stream you can still stream it for seven days afterwards so that is still really fun to do tickets are eight dollars right now but 48 hours before the show they will bounce up to 10 so you're better off buying them now and if you want to see us live live in the flesh we are going to be in chicago on may 14th at 8 p.m and 10 p.m after the 10 p.m show we'll probably go out for a drink or so so if you want to party come to that one And before we scooch any further, I just want to say thank you to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. Who doesn't love a good mystery? In the hidden object murder mystery game June's Journey, you'll awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the Roaring Twenties. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Speaking of games. Sure. If you were to write a memoir, how would you describe it this week? This is what I would have said. I would have said, ah, the game of life. How are you playing it this week? Okay. I'm calling it God. You better not be playing pranks on me. (laughs) April fools. (laughs) Okay. Trigger warning birth shit or whatever. Because like, I don't want to make light of this because I know that for some people this is like deeply traumatizing like this is such an emotional thing but if you guys listen to the patreon i've been going through like a birth control hell journey of like i switched insurances and then they discontinued my old pill and then they sent me a new one that i didn't want and now i can't undo it with my insurance and so like now i'm thinking about getting an id and i just went and met with a midwife for the first time and i had this fantasy that i would go meet with a midwife and she would just like I don't know what I expected because the woman was... I think you expected to like walk into a room filled with couches and have a woman like brush your hair while she talks to you about fertility options. I I think I really thought she would just be like, if you want to cry, go ahead. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a woman with like medical training to be like, it's okay to cry in my arms. (laughs) My heart goes out because I, without having it have just been the easiest thing in the world, I have like the next level of 
the stuff like I do have insurance. I'm very lucky. Overall, I have it relatively easy, but I'm just so fucking burnt out on having to like constantly be trying to not get pregnant. And then I had this idea today of I always have these like deep suspicions that I won't be able to get pregnant. And I'm like, I think that's actually quite normal. I've heard that a lot of women my age are starting to be like, wait a minute, why haven't I been pregnant yet? I'm not responsible. But then I was thinking, I was like, wow, man, if I am putting all this fucking effort into not getting pregnant only to find out I couldn't have anyway, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> so much work all the time. A pill a day. Ugh. The fact that there's not a button where we could turn on and off ovulation is fucked. And I do think God is a man because he must hate us. Yeah. That's what I'm coming off of. But otherwise, life is good. Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity, what would last week's memoir be called? It would be called The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same. And it would be about how the thing that's changed for me is that I got my first Botox this week. And then what's staying the same is uh, my forehead. <laughs> it's stuck still. And I'm so happy with it. I will say, I do think if I were to write a memoir, I would talk about this quite extensively because it was a tough decision for me because I wanted it really badly. And I knew that I would be happy with it. I knew it was what my forehead wanted and what it would take for me to be happy looking at myself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. But I was very nervous about the implications because I feel like Botox is a very politicized situation about beauty standards and the patriarchy and blah, blah, blah. And when I talked to my mom about it, I, I didn't tell her that I was getting it. I told her that I got it and she was upset. Like her voice sounded like Heidi's mom when she came to Colorado <laughs> and showed her her face. And I was like, I did not undergo 16 surgeries in one day and die on the table. I got a couple little syringes of Botox in my noggin. I'm so happy with it. It's not that big of a deal, but it also makes me very happy. And I just like it. Like I don't like how my forehead looked. Mm -hmm. And so I feel very happy being able to just change it for a few hundred dollars. Dude, whatever makes you happy. Exactly. But I think that it is like a very complicated thing because people feel very defensive about how you shouldn't change yourself. You know who has my favorite joke about and this? And I didn't change myself. I kept myself frozen. That's just, so <laughs> this comedian, Sally Ann Hall, has one of my favorite jokes. She talks about like getting Botox whenever she tells people. They're like, oh my God, you don't need that. You're so pretty. And she's like, no, I know I'm so pretty. That's why I want to look like this forever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, you can get Botox because I promise at least until my IUD comes out in three years that I won't. So I feel like <laughs> we've got both sides. In this podcast, you have a role model for whatever your choice is. We're a pro-choice podcast. Yeah, we are pro-choice. Inject your head or don't. <laughs> And so whatever you need to see that day, you can look at Ashley and say, look how happy she is. It was one little change. Who cares? You can look at me and say, look at Claire. She's really brave with that dry <laughs> ass forehead. I'm actually going to talk about this more on the Patreon. I feel like my mom's reaction really annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> Should we get into this week's book? Yes, we are doing a woman that I actually told a lot of you straight to your faces. I refuse to do. You guys, <laughs> I mean, you guys know we try not to do comedy women. We are sort of running out of interesting people. So I'm like, all right, a lot of the things I said no to were turning around. Yeah. This is anal 10 years into the marriage or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I do want to say, so just like background on obviously as comedians, as women who grew up watching Mindy Kaling, I had had strong points about her that were women. <laughs> yeah. No, that we're doing Mindy Kaling. Oh, sorry. So this week we are doing Mindy Kaling, her first book of essays. Is everyone hanging out without me? And the answer is yes. We're here talking about her hanging That's so out. That's true. I've never hung out with her once and we hang out a lot. So we are constantly hanging out without her. We've stopped doing this for the most part, but I do want to say each of our personal feelings about Mindy. Yes. So I had read this book, I would say the summer after my freshman year of college, so maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I remember distinctly not liking it. I remember feeling like she was very petty 
And I just was very turned against her. I do think Kelly Kapoor is like one of the funniest characters of all time. I think Kelly Kapoor is an absolutely genius character to the point that she, I think, informed who I am as an entire adult. <laughs> I also did not like the Mindy Project. I was like deeply disappointed by the Mindy Project. But I, one of my all-time favorite quotes does come from the Mindy Project. What is it? Best friend is not a person. It's a tear. Oh. I will say, I mean, just like spoiler again, I have really changed a lot of my previously held feelings. I think reading this book in college, I was coming at it having read a lot of great books and I felt underwhelmed reading it now. (laughs) Now that I'm drowning in a sea of some of the worst garbage ever written, I'm like, this is really good. I actually have really warmed up to her. I feel like there's a lot to love. There's a couple things to pick up, but I'm I mean, Mia culpa. I feel like I was too hard on Mindy the first time. I actually read this book a long time ago, too, and thought that it was nice. I like don't remember that much about it. I just remember kind of liking it and not really feeling that strongly about it in any way. And then you saying that you hated it and being like, OK, we're going to go into this book and find out that I actually might hate Mindy. She, for a long time, was like a huge inspiration to me. Honestly, still is. I think that her and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are like just without a doubt some of the most important women in comedy and I think watching her rise through the ranks and go from side character on the office to then having her own show I really liked parts of the Mindy project I think the first couple seasons have a lot of really great moments and then it really just becomes tough to watch but I remember watching that show and feeling two things one it was poorly paced Mm -hmm. I remember feeling like every episode was written as if it might be the last episode and they just didn't know Two, I remember being extremely frustrated by the lack of women in that show. I remember there's two other women in the Mindy Project. One was like a black Suri from yeah. 30 Rock, which I remember being like, why did she do this? And then the other woman was like an old woman. I will say one of the stressful things about the Mindy Project is that the core cast changes a lot and not for good reason. And I think it was like ABC fucking with the show. We can get into this. We'll get into it on the Patreon. So in the initial version of the show, like the season one, the women in the show were a different hot girl at the front desk. There was the old lady and then she had a female best friend who just really was written out of the show because she made no sense there. But it moved around a lot. What I had always taken away from it was this feeling of Mindy was given all of this power and ability. And maybe this is unfair and it's something I'll talk about like as we get through the book. But she kind of used it to not help any other women. Yeah, we actually talked about this earlier and I called out, just because again, this is like outside of the book, mm-hmm. I called out the sex lives of college girls and never have I ever, which I think are very good current female-led shows, mm-hmm. which Mindy produces. So I do think that she's working on it. It seems. I don't know. I don't know her and I don't know who's in her writer's rooms. But I also think like that being said, she was just in that movie where the literal premise of it is she's like the only woman in the room. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, it also begs the question of, is it every woman's job job on earth? She like fought for herself. Why does she have to fight for me? So let's get into it. This is very much a book of its time. It has both kind of memoir style chapters that go through her life and then also a lot of listicles. So we are going to go through all the biographical parts first and then we're going to double back and kind of sort through the more nonsense parts that are just neither here nor there yeah Mindy Kaling was born June 24th 1979 she is currently 42 years old 
she wrote it when she was 32. It came out in 2011. Definitely the only trigger warning involved, I would say, is a bit of fat phobia. That's pretty par for the 2011 course. I mean, I would say in terms of the 2011 world, this is as good as it got. <laughs> yeah. So in the intro, she says the point of this book. I wrote this book in a way that reflects how I think. Sometimes it's an essay or a story, and sometimes it's a pleased, which is a piece with a listy quality, a term I've just made up. We call it a listicle, and we've historically railed against them, but I do think... The thing is, these are filled out paragraph. It's a list of paragraphs. She also says, in this book, I write a lot about romance, female friendships, unfair situations that now seem funny in retrospect, unfair situations that I still don't think are funny, Hollywood heartache in my childhood. And I will say, much like Claire's initial qualms about the book, she writes, you should know that I disagree with a lot of traditional advice. For instance, they say the best revenge is living well. I say it's acid in the face. Who will love them now? And she talks a little bit about how she clearly does not believe in forgive and forget. She does not forget. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be an unlikable quality, but it is damn honest. (laughs) Another old saying is that revenge is a dish best served cold, but it feels best served piping hot straight out of the oven of outrage. My opinion, take care of revenge right away. Push, shove, scratch that person while they're within arm's reach. Don't let them get away. Who knows when you'll get this opportunity again. I have like a real sense of when I first read this book being like, she is so petty and so many of the things she brings up let go of. I stand by one or two of them. But for the rest, I've really forgiven her. And then I also have this cloak of admiration for her being so unapologetically herself when I feel like to be a real girl's girl was that sounds so stupid, but it it was hard to come out and be like, I like romance. I like talking about the Kardashians. I like talking about Beyonce. Like she just loves shopping and chatting with her gals. (laughs) Like good for you. Be traditionally feminine in a way that's often seen as stupid. Yes. So she starts off with her upbringing and the first chapter is of course called chubby for life. I don't remember a time when I wasn't chubby. Like being Indian, being chubby feels like a part of my permanent deal. So she talks about how growing up she became very aware of her weight. I think around second grade when she found out she weighed almost twice as much as the popular girl. And she was like, I knew right then that I should be closer to the popular girl's weight and not closer to twice her weight. Which I do think is like a very clarifying moment. We live in a country that is obsessed with weights. And I remember the first time realizing like what the hot girl's bodies looked like and what my body looked like and being like, am I not a hot girl? So then she goes through truly, she goes through truly a problematic list of ways to say that someone is not thin. I mean, she's doing it from the perspective of somebody who has chosen to be comfortable in her body being not a size zero in Hollywood, which is hard. And I mean, she gets to that, the fact that she was like neither super skinny or traditionally plus size. Yeah. And or plus size at all. It does harken back to like what I was saying. Is it enough for her to just exist? How hard should she be fighting? But even coming from her mouth, she has a list of the difference between chubby, chubster, fat, so fat ass, job of the hut, obese, obesitron, overweight, pudgy, pudgo, tubbo, and whale. I mean, these are tough terms. And then she defines them each specifically. I don't think it's like great that she wrote this, but she's been called the worst of these terms. And that's why I think she like gets to say them. I don't know. (laughs) In this book, it is taken as a given that to be not a size zero is like just morally wrong. That anybody who's over an extremely tiny BMI just should be skinnier. They know that it's accepted. It's just a given. So then she gets into Duante Diallo. And I think that this is one of the more controversial sections. So this kid who moved from Senegal to her school and was basically brought in to make their basketball team good bullied the shit out of her. And I think it is quite controversial to use such full 
first and last name detail. I do wonder if this is his real name. So I remember the first time I read this, this was actually an exact example of when things where I was like, what is wrong with her? Get a grip. But now I'm looking back. I'm like, one, I wonder if that's his real name. She probably did change it. Maybe she's petty. So this kid, Duante, was brought in from Senegal and he was mean to her about her weight. It started off simple. Like you could actually be really pretty if you lost weight, which she talks about how she took that as a compliment and how a pattern in her childhood is taking mean things from boys and like saying thank you, which I found very relatable. But then she said, by winter, I had not lost any weight and in fact had gained about 10 more pounds. This really bothered Duante. I think it's because he felt he had gone out of his way to give me some valuable advice and I had chosen not to follow it, therefore insulting him. One day in February, I walked into the freshman center. He stopped mid conversation with his friends and gestured to me. Speaking of whales, I don't even think they had been talking about whales. <laughs> so after that, she decided that she was going to lose weight. And she said, it's one of the two times in my life I've very quickly lost a lot of weight. And her diet was just to eat half of everything she was served. And she lost 30 pounds very quickly. I thought Duante would finally leave me alone, but he didn't. One day I was walking down the hallway to class and passed Duante and his group of friends. Duante, remember when Mindy was a whale? They all laughed. Come on, dude. Remember when? I'm getting made fun of because I used to be fat. The laws of bullying allowed you to be cruel when the victim had made strides for improvement. This is when I realized that bullies had no code of conduct. Lucky for me, Duante was a bad student. And she talks about like delighting in the fact that he was really bad at school and had to go to middle school for some of his classes. And then he broke his leg shattering his basketball dreams he didn't play that season and was never as good at basketball after the injury he dropped out junior year and i heard he got a girl pregnant part of me now feels a little bad for duante diallo but not at the time i was so happy that fucking mean senegalese kid i remember when i first read that i was like this is just some poor teenager who literally immigrated from another country alone it happened 20 years ago like let it go like you're, you're now a very successful tv writer and you're writing like oh he probably got some girl pregnant and has no future <laughs> but reading it back I'm like I don't know he was really mean to you <laughs> so that's the thing is he was really mean and I do think that had she written this book even like three years later that chapter wouldn't have been in and not because she would have been like oh that's not an appropriate thing to write but because she, I think that it takes a really long time to let go of wounds like that I don't know I think it always would have been in I don't think it ever would have been taken out I think the chapter where she lists every kind of way of saying chubby would have been taken out but I don't know I think this is a core part of who she is because I'm a pretty petty person and I remember for a long time after high school like thinking about the people who were like shitty to me the ways that I would get revenge on them in the future and calling them out in like public places and things like that even as I was doing comedy and like hoping to be successful someday, I was like, oh man, these motherfuckers. And it took me until like probably a year ago to be like, oh, I would not want them to know that I've ever thought of them for a day beyond the last time we ever saw each other. That is better. I just think you might be different than her. I mean, she's Maybe. obviously on the other side of success. <laughs> I mean, she has an entire chapter in here called My Revenge Fantasies where she invents things to get upset about and then she gets revenge. <laughs> She writes about how she loves getting revenge. That's true. She does love revenge. I just think she is different than you. <laughs> Maybe. She ends this section with, I love diets. I wish I could just be one of those French women you read about who stays thin by eating only the most gourmet foods in tiny, ascetic proportions, but I could never do that. First of all, I largely don't like gourmet food. I like frozen yogurt. I love diet soda. I even like margarine. And then the other thing is she's like, I straight up like dieting. She's like, it's my hobby. I like learning new ways of weird eating and like restricting it until I get bored and finding a new one. So she says that's the reason why she never wants to lose weight is that she doesn't want to lose her hobby of dieting. And then she goes, two, I have no discipline. 
And then three guys I've dated have been into me the way I am. And four, I'm pretty happy with the way I look so long as I don't break a beach chair. I think now what would have changed is she would have gone more into being happy with herself. I think the emphasis on being happy with yourself, you're allowed to be that now. Here, it's like a throwaway line. She has to like talk more about the experience of dieting, the experience of feeling bad. But I think these days people would have been like, no, tell us about being happy with yourself. And I think people forget that that is a choice that you make. And she ends this chapter by saying, if someone called me chubby, it would no longer be something that kept me up late at night. Being called fat is not like being called stupid or unfunny, which is the worst thing you could ever say to me. Do I envy Jennifer Hudson for being able to lose all that weight and look smoking hot? Of course, yes. Do I sometimes look at Giselle Bundchen and wonder how awesome life would be if I never had to wear Spanx? Duh, of course. That's kind of the point of Giselle Bundchen. But on the list of things I want to do in my lifetime, it's not near the top. I mean, it's not near the bottom either. I'd say right above Let's Drive a Vespa, but several notches below film a chase scene for a movie. And I think that that is really interesting and honestly kind of a healthy place to be like, listen, my body is a thing. It's not the most important thing to me. There's like other stuff on the list. You have to decide what your priorities are. And it's really nice when looking a certain way isn't your top priority. It like affords a lot of freedom to do other shit. So then she has a chapter called Don't Peak in High School. Sometimes teenage girls ask me for advice about what they should be doing if they want a career like mine one day. There are basically two ways to get where I am. One, learn a provocative dance and put it on YouTube. Two, convince your parents to move over to Orlando and homeschool you until you get cast on a kid's show. Or do what I did, which is three, stay in school and be a respectful, hardworking wallflower and go to an accredited non-online university. And then she has this chapter that I really agree with. Teenage girls, please don't worry about being super popular in high school. And she gets into this song, Jack and Diane by John Cougar Mellencamp. And she's like... That song's about the nostalgia of how like all the great days of your life are in high school. Life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. And she's like, the thrill of living should not for you have been high school. It is very pathetic for you to look back and be like, the greatest days of my life were before I was even legally allowed to vote. No, get a grip. That is something I 100% espouse. I call them your prom years. Society tells you that these are like the most important years of your life. And they're literally the dumbest years of your life. So don't worry I know. about it. I mean, someone asked us in the chat after we recorded the Patreon episode last week, I saw that there was a question of, can you guys tell us your prom stories? I didn't go to prom. I just, I don't know. I, high school was like not important. The thing about prom is it's at the end of high school where then you're a legal adult. And if you want to get dressed up and go dancing and drink with your friends every day for the rest of your life, you, you fucking can. Prom is just the first of the rest of your life. I feel that way about your early 20s. Everybody says it's supposed to be so magical, but it gets better. Things can keep getting better if you want them to. Yeah, as long as you do the Elvira move of like consistently fighting for your own happiness, you can always be happier than you were last year because you'll always know yourself better. And I really like the way she talks about high school. She says, what I've noticed is almost no one who's a big star in high school is also a big star later in life. For us overlooked kids, it's so wonderfully fair. I was never the lead in the play. I don't think I went to a single party with alcohol at it. No one offered me pot. I was like, it's fucking my life, dude. And I don't hate that that was my life. Okay, and then we get to a chapter about friendship called Is Everyone Hanging Out Without Me or How I Made My First Real Friend. So she talks about her ninth grade friend group and her ninth grade secret friend. Obviously, high school friendship politics are very complex. And so she had a friend group that was like obsessed with each other and they like had their initials on bracelets and it was a very merch based friendship and like tradition based friendship and you had to do certain things a certain way together. And then she had this secret friend named Mavis and Mavis was 5'10", which made her 
A social pariah. An absolute freak of nature. <laughs> Tall girl. She hung out with the techies. Honestly, this girl sounds cool as shit. And she and Mindy were both obsessed with comedy. And they would like study comedy together, watch SNL, find all these comedy clips and study them and discuss the nuances of a bit, which was really important for Mindy's development. As we can see, she made quite a career out of that. <laughs> and the other friends were her more like girly girlfriends. They would shop together a lot and the main thing they had in common is that they all like viewed each other as a core best friendship it doesn't seem like they had a lot of main things in common every friday after school her and jlmp that's the group would go to the cheesecake factory they'd get a slice of cheesecake and a bunch of cokes and just sit around and gab dude that made me laugh because she talks about being at the cheesecake factory We'd stay for hours chewing on straws and gossiping about boys and collectively only spend about $15 on one slice of cheesecake and four Cokes. Obviously, the waiters loathed us. In a way, we were worse than the Dine and Dashers because at least the Dine and Dashers only hit up the Cheesecake Factory once and never showed up again. We, on the other hand, thought we were beloved regulars. <laughs> I am sure that they were like, we're back sitting in our favorite section. They're excited to see us. <laughs> in eighth grade, me and my friends would go to the same boutique store every single day after school and like try on clothes. And I remember at one point the woman just being like, are you going to buy anything? If not, leave. And in my dumb little 13-year-old brain, I was like, oh, I was so close to buying a t-shirt. <laughs> I thought I was Julia Roberts. And literally I was like, after 19 straight days of messing up your inventory, I was really thinking about spending $25 and now I will not. <laughs> okay. So they would go to the Cheesecake Factory and gab. And then, so after watching Monty Python's Flying Circus with Mavis all day, she was hanging out with her real friend group. She shows them some Monty Pythons and like does not understand why they don't think it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. And she is like questioning everything about her life, realizing that her friends don't think the Ministry of Silly Walks is that silly. You can't really explain that joke. And she says, it scared me that they dismissed it so completely. I felt like two different people. And this was a real fork in the road for her of, do I just keep on talking about clothes and boys or should I really dive into the comedy part of myself? And so she starts blowing off these friends to do comedy things with Mavis. And then eventually they just move on without her. She kind of suspects that because she's not hanging out with the group anymore, the group isn't hanging out. They're just still hanging out, but without her. I will say this part was confusing for me because I was like, why would you think that? <laughs> They're not just going to sit at home alone on a Friday because one person can't go to the Cheesecake Factory. I think, I think what was shocking to her was that she wasn't invited this specific time. She's at the mall with Mavis and she sees them there and she hadn't even been invited this time. Okay. And I think that that's like the breaking point of being like, okay, I have taken myself out of this group. And now it's permanent. They were right to be hurt and move on without her. But what is this? The consequences of my inactions? Damn. <laughs> <laughs> and she's hurt by it. But then her and Mavis's friendship is pretty strong throughout all of high school. And it gives her this understanding that not all friendships need to be these solidified. We write our names down on a list of who is best friends. She ends it and it's really funny. She's like, even though Mavis was my secret friend, she's the only one I hope to see again. She's the only one I wonder about. I hope she wonders about me too. And I'm like, trust me, you are on the most popular television show in America. She thinks about you. If she my knows. childhood best friend was like the president, I'd be like thinking about it. <laughs> so then she has failing at everything in the greatest city on earth, which is like the fun 20s chapter. And it's about after she graduated Dartmouth, her and her two best friends, Jocelyn and Brenda, moved to New York City and have honestly like the dream time they're just best friends living in new york they're living in windsor park windsor terrace do you know who else is from windsor terrace who bug 
I didn't know that. Yeah, they lived in like a railroad one bedroom. Two of them lived in the living room and one of them lived in the bedroom. I agree with so much of what she says in this book. One of the things that I vehemently disagree with is sharing beds. Oh my God, same. I hate that. I think I might have felt different about it when I was younger. So they all live in this little apartment. She shares a bed with Jocelyn. Brenda was her best friend. And then she had another friend, Jocelyn, and she writes these like really cute odes to them about the fun they all had. Brenda was her true bosom buddy where they would just like laugh at everything. Endless inside jokes. They were a team. If you mess with one, you mess with the other. And then Jocelyn was the event maker. She'd always figure out ways to make sure they were having fun. Such good friends to have. She talks about how during college she was an intern at NBC and worked at the Conan O'Brien show and did such a bad job that she had no connections after she left. (laughs) She's like, the thing is, I loved Conan O'Brien. So I spent my entire night like watching him perform. Yeah. And not doing her job. It also made me laugh this part where she talks about moving to New York, how she kind of thought that that was all you had to do. She says, I had placed a lot of faith in Woody Allen's belief that 80% of success was just showing up. I said to myself, are you serious? 80%? Sure, I can just show up. Here I am, New York. Give me a job. It turns out the other 20% is the kind of difficult nebulous part. And that is true. Yeah, I don't know who said just, I've been showing up for years. (laughs) I Also, she talks about their apartment. In the summer, feral cats and heat clung to the screens of our living room, meowing mournfully until we threw a glass of water at them. When it got cold, the roaches migrated in and set up homes in every drain. Sometimes when I got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, I would feel a disgusting crackly squelch under my foot, and I'd know I'd have to rinse off the roach from my heel. That was our apartment. We took the bad with the pretty good. Yikes. Also, she mentions the stairs. Oh, the stairs. The staircase in our third floor walk up was the steepest, hardest, metalist staircase I've ever encountered in my life. And I said, three floors? Try me. (laughs) She's young. She's in New York. She's trying to figure out what to do. She's paying her rent by babysitting. Not even full time. Just at night, she babysits for the super rich family who lives in Cobble Hill, which sounds amazing. Yeah, they sound cool. (laughs) And then... She says she spends her days at like Barnes and Noble reading all the books about script writing. She's like, I couldn't afford to buy any of them. She's like, everybody else there was the same. Like we would just sit in the aisles and like transcribe the books onto our own notepad. And she's like, I guess that's why that Barnes and Noble is closed down. Nobody bought anything. But she's also auditioning for things. She auditioned to be in Bombay Dreams because they needed Indian background dancers. And she said she was such a bad dancer that she went to the dance audition and they literally came up to her in the middle and they're like, are you okay? (laughs) Like you're breathing really heavy. And so she fell and had to leave in the middle. She also talks about having an interview as an NBC page that she did not get because she said she didn't always want to be an NBC page. I will say that interview really resonated with me. (laughs) I like didn't know that you could be a page forever. Yeah. They're like, why do you want to be here? And she's like, I really would love to like get in at NBC. They're like, so you're just using this for opportunities. I thought that it was like a short term program. I thought you could only be a page. Me too. I thought my friend was a page for a year. (laughs) Yeah. I guess you're supposed to want to stay longer. They're supposed to have to kick you out after a year and say, you think paging is forever. You can't page no more. You've got to leave the nest baby page. So then she gets a job working on the set for a TV psychic. And this job has benefits, which is a pretty big deal. This is 2002, she says. Yeah. And I guess at the time, network TV had some money. I don't think the the job she had today would give her benefits. I will say there is this whole weird world of syndicated television. My old roommate in LA worked for a syndicated TV company. And that was like these production companies that would just like churn out hundreds of episodes of daytime television and then sell them to basic cable for honestly a lot of money. Like it was this weird. But I think like in today's day and age, they don't have to pay the lowers much. Yeah, they don't. Like I feel like they probably cut everybody's benefits. Probably. Yeah. 
she talks a lot about the hold that Sex in the City, the show, had on everybody in this day and age. Like everybody had to figure out a way to get their life to be in the Sex in the City archetype. And Mindy just like didn't have a lot of luck with guys. And so her boss would be like, you're such a Charlotte. And she's like, totally. That's why I'm not getting laid because I'm a hopeless romantic. She does this for about a year. And then she gets to Matt and Ben and Mindy and Brenda. And this is really interesting. If you don't know, the career trajectory of Mindy Kaling is actually quite interesting. The way she got her start is her and her best friend Brenda from Dartmouth, they were roommates at the time, wrote a play. And she says, I was finally paying the bills, but Brenda and I weren't doing anything creative. I became increasingly worried that I had moved to New York City to be a professional au pair. Because no one was hiring us to act or write, Brenda and I decided to create something to perform in ourselves. They basically had an hour during the day that they overlapped because of all their odd jobs where they were both in the apartment. And so they were like, that was our writing hour. And of course, one thing we know as creative partners, it takes us at least one hour to get down to business. We'll always be like, don't chat. And then I'm like, okay, I just have to tell you one thing. And then like two hours later, it's like, okay, should we do a 15 minute phone break and then start? We're now like three hours into sitting. So obviously they didn't get a lot done during this one hour, but they did create these characters that they would just like do as bits for each other called Matt and Ben, which were Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, but like how they imagined them. Yeah, which I love. That is, I mean, it is so funny that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote that movie. They had just won an Oscar for the screenplay. It's so funny that there are so many moments in this book where you're like, wow, if only you knew how hard this would come back around. She says, this was the height of Benefer. Sorry, I hate to resurrect the term, which the media has thankfully put to bed. If only you knew. <laughs> and I want to say she credits, and I think credit where credit's due. If you guys don't know the younger generations, Benefer was the first hybrid name. Without them, we wouldn't have Tomcat. We wouldn't have Brangelina. We wouldn't have had... Clashley. <laughs> <laughs> That's Claire and Ashley. <laughs> And so they start working on this like elongated version of this bit they do back and forth. She says, soon our Matt and Ben had a rich and completely made up backstory and dynamic. They had private jokes and shared memories. Again, all made up. We did no research on the actual people because we didn't care about their actual pasts. The real Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were simply jumping off points for our Matt and Ben. It was a special kind of fun to be two best friends playing two other best friends. So the premise of this play, if you guys know, is basically that they're working on a movie adaptation of Catcher in the Rye when literally the script for goodwill hunting falls and hits them in the head like it falls from the sky and that's how they come up with the movie and she gives this advice which i think is so spot on she says if i could give one bit of advice to any drama major high school theater kid or inmate who is reading this in prison with dreams of being cast in the prison play it's this write your own part it is the only way i've gotten anywhere it's much harder work but sometimes you have to take destiny into your own hands it forces you to think about what your strengths really are and once you find them you can showcase them and no one can stop you I wasn't going to be able to showcase what I did best in an off-Broadway off revival of Our Town. I was going to do it playing Ben Affleck. And so then they put this play on. They get it in a little black box theater. It ends up in the New York International Fringe Festival where it won best play out of 500 plays. So I have to say, like, I remember being a bit frustrated that it was like after one year she's writing for The Office. But also it's like, I guess she did something great. Seems like she's a very good writer. And I will say, based on what I know of her, I think she's really good at what she does. This is so up my alley. This is what I wish we had come up with. It is so funny. Yeah. To do like this boy best friendship. So the play just keeps on rising to new heights. It ends up getting them an agent. I mean, it's reviewed everywhere. It becomes very popular. Steve Martin goes to see it for Christ's sakes. And Nicole Kidman. And then she tells like the famous story. It's not that famous. It's famous to her. (laughs) But of when the New York Times reviewer came to watch it, there's a scene where they fight and she accidentally broke Brenda's nose. They had to like run off stage while Brenda bled. And then they went out and finished the show. 
for the New York Times. I mean, you have to. Bruce Weber's there. You've got to finish the show. And I have to say something that like Ashley has said about other people or we've both felt the amount of times we've been like, okay, but how did you get your agent or how did you do this? Like she does lay it out exactly. Her and her friend wrote this play. They literally spent as little money as they could on it. They used Brenda's brother's outfits as costumes. They directed it themselves. So that they didn't have to pay a director. I think their friend Jocelyn like produced it. They originally drummed up interest by just flyering everywhere in the neighborhood yeah and then it just truly took off and they entered it into festivals and then agents and people came and saw it and through there they were able to like get better representation and then the representation helps them out with stuff and so that's exactly how it happened and so it was at one of these performances that greg daniels creator of king of the hill and soon to be creator of the office saw her called her representation and got a meeting and so they also ended up making a pilot of this show well the pilot ended up being Mindy and Brenda yeah it was called Mindy and Brenda so they got picked up they shopped around a show after the success of Matt and Ben it ended up being Mindy and Brenda which was like two best friends making shit together the network ruined the show we hear this all the time they like wanted hot girls to be Mindy and Brenda not Mindy and Brenda (laughs) she won't name drop the channel but I think it was the WB probably because she's like it was the kind of show where all they wanted was hot teens to sell you brands she says that not having that show picked up was an incredible relief and I think that that does show great foresight because I think having a show get picked up is obviously the dream but having a show that's like a mangled version of your show those things are so hard to get going and it takes up all of your time and I think to like have done this thing that that your heart wasn't in sucks yeah so it worked out she didn't get it She's like, my agents thought that sucked, but I was like happy not to have to put my name on this thing I wasn't proud of. And luckily, she says, the only other thing I had keeping me in Los Angeles was that I'd been hired as a staff writer for six episodes of a mid-season NBC show that was a remake of a British show called The Office. Ever heard of it? She specifically leaves it as a cliffhanger there, which is excellent storytelling because I love excellent storytelling, which is why I love June's Journey. Whether you're craving a good mystery or you just need to dive into your phone for a little distraction, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. Sit down and let your inner Sherlock escape into the glamorous Roaring Twenties. Let me tell you guys, there is nothing like the costumes of the Roaring Twenties. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. They are so well played out. There is so much just drawing you in. It feels like one of those supernatural movies where you just get thrown into a game. You feel like you're the one running around living June's journey. There are new chapters added every single week. So there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. You are honestly never going to run out of stories within June's Journey. They really set you up for hours of entertainment. One of my favorite things about June's Journey is being able to use it as a little phone reward at the end of completing a task. You guys know that I'm bad at motivating myself to complete tasks. There is a detective in all of us. Find your inner detective and download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Wow, you know who definitely likes to reward herself? Mindy Kaling. Yeah, I bet she rewarded herself after the long writing days of The Office. So she jumps into her time on The Office. She says, The Office is a big chapter in my life, so that's why it's a big chapter in my book. It is what I'm best known for and what people ask me about the most. I appreciate that she's like, yeah, this is huge for me and I'm grateful for it. As opposed to one John Krasinski, who is such a little turd monger about it. Like, be fucking lucky. You're Jim. Jim. I hate that he thinks he's better than them because he read David Foster Wallace. Is that why he thinks he's better than them? He tried to do like a short film based on this game from Infinite Jest that I think bombed. But that alone tells me everything I need to know about how smart he thinks he is. I actually really like the way he said, how about some good news? 
So then she goes into like, is anybody a diva on set? And she says no. And then she says that her and Kelly are very different, which I question. Me too. I do really like this list of what Kelly would do and what both Kelly and Mindy would do. It's just a funny list. Fake a pregnancy for attention is what Kelly would do. Text while showering is a Kelly thing. Plant evidence of cheating in order to confront a boyfriend. Cry about a celebrity breakup. Use a voodoo doll. Write a mean anonymous letter to Lance Armstrong, Reshale Crow. Create an online persona to cyberbully a girl into being anorexic. Kelly and Mindy things are fake our own deaths to catch a serial killer. Cry at work occasionally. Have a royal wedding viewing party. Go to goop.com every day. Drive with our parking brake on. Spend hours following a difficult recipe. Hate the way it tastes. Throw it out. Go to McDonald's. She says that she actually doesn't even write for Kelly that often, which I find very interesting. In order to write an episode, you have to then be able to like script supervise that episode. So if you're going to be in it, you can't also write it, hmm. which I didn't know. So then she talks about like starting out with writing. So basically the deal with The Office is when it was initially picked up, it was a mid-season six episode pickup. NBC had no hopes for it. NBC had had hopes for three other TV shows that I had never heard of in my life. You never heard of Joey? Oh, yeah, you're right. So they had Joey and they had two other things I had never heard of. At the time, NBC had very high hopes for the comedies Committed, a show about eccentric friends living together in New York City, an animated show called Father of the Pride and Joey, the spinoff of Friends starring Joey. She says she could not get meetings with any of those shows, but The Office was just this weird underdog show that no one really expected anything to happen with. It gets picked up because something else had been canceled mid-season, so they like slide it in just to finish out the fall. She goes in and there's just five people there. She says it was Greg Daniels, Paul Lieberstein, Mike Schur, BJ Novak, and me. She said that she thought the rest of them were just best friends, Greg, BJ, and Mike, because they'd all gone to Harvard. And so she was like, oh, they must all know each other well. But also they were clicky. She goes, I'll never forget one day at lunch when Mike asked BJ to go to a Red Sox Dodgers game while I stewed angrily on the other side of the room, feeling left out. I'll get you, you clicky sons of bitches. I thought, you know what? I never did get them. I'm just realizing that now. I should still totally get them. This goes back to the like, what does she owe other women to be not only the only person of color, but the only woman in a room of four Harvard losers, four white male Harvard losers. They had all had experience before, I think. Maybe not BJ. I think he also was hired straight no, out. No, I think he wrote on like Crank Yankers or some. He like had one writing job right out of college and then the office, I think. Okay, that makes sense because she says she was the only person that had never had experience before. So I mean, yeah. not only is she coming with no experience, she is the odd man out and the fact that she held her own and we'll get back to later. Greg Daniels jokingly writes this satirical eulogy of her and it sounds like she showed up and he said she was confident on the verge of cocky and also would not stop talking. And I like have so much fucking respect that she does not bow down to anybody that she is unapologetically herself. And it sounds annoying and I'm annoying and I like want to be even more annoying. And it is hard to know that line. Like when you're given an opportunity, you're like, do I sit here and be polite or do I like show them what I've got? Do I like show them why I was hired? And that takes a lot of guts to be like, no, they hired me for a reason. I'm going to give them that writing. Like either way, the idea that like BJ Novak should get to determine the vibe of the room because she's like different than everyone else. I just am so impressed by the way she in her early 20s walked in there and was like, no, I'm going to give you my ideas and you're going to listen to them. She says she used to fight with Greg Daniels constantly to the point where it was like a running joke. At one point, two writers brought their dogs in at night and the dogs got into a fight and everyone was like, oh, is that Greg and Mindy? So at one point, he who never raised his voice at anybody made her like leave. And so she left. I don't know, man. You're the only person I'll fight with. (laughs) And her mom was like, Greg Daniels took a chance on you and changed your life. Don't fight with Greg Daniels. And she was like, fuck, you're right. (laughs) 
I think I related to her a lot because I, I do really stand up for myself at work. And I feel like at a certain, sometimes I forget that like they are paying you to do a job. <laughs> Ashley is famously a questionable employee. <laughs> I'm famously combative for the betterment of not myself. I mean, it never works out better for you. <laughs> I've never seen you win. <laughs> yeah, she talks about when he made her leave and she goes, this is what I get for trying to make the show better. I'm funnier and a better writer than every single one of those assholes. <laughs> I pictured myself accepting the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor at the Kennedy Center and all those other writers watching from home with the hope that I might acknowledge them. And I pointedly wouldn't. Instead, I'd thank Talia, the Greek muse of comedy. I'd freaking thank Talia over those guys. She talks about what it was like to finally start getting recognized a little bit, how it was kind of cool to not get rejected at the door of parties anymore. I will say I'd be interested in reading this chapter again in her second book because now she's a genuine famous person. She then talks about her time at SNL. She did a contributing couple weeks at SNL during one of the hiatuses of the office, like during the off season. She said she got it because she'd written the episode The Injury, which if you're an office fan, is one of the funnier things I've ever seen. And she talks about working at SNL, the people she met. She has a little line about how Amy Poehler is just like this gleaming gem of a human, which we've read before and makes me want to meet Amy Poehler. She also talks about how badly her sketches went over. And I have to say her sketches sounded bad. bad. It, it is always nice to be like, yeah, other people have bad moments too. It is interesting to read about working at SNL from the perspective of someone who actually kind of doesn't care about working at SNL. She says that most people use being brought in as a guest writer as like an audition for SNL. And she wasn't trying to audition for SNL. She was writing on the office full time. She didn't have time to get a job at SNL too. So she just kind of went in and was like, this is a fun idea. And they were like, what the fuck are you talking about? She only wrote one sketch that got on and it was Chad Michael Murray explaining why he always had to get married. That's what Ashley would show up with. <laughs> She's like, Chad Michael wasn't hurting anybody, but I just really felt that he needed to be taken down a peg. Why does he always need to get married? He does it a lot. This is another one of the petty chapters that you were not stoked on the day I stopped eating cupcakes. So when you're writing on a show, if it's your episode that you're writing, you don't go into the office. You're supposed to stay home and write the episode and then you go and rejoin the writer's room. The way it works is like at the beginning of the season, they'll come up with the narrative arcs for everything and then they divvy up each episode. Like some of the writers will get to write the entire episode and then you bring back your episode and then the writer's room goes line by line and like shouts out punch ups. Yes. So it was a week where she was writing an episode. So she kind of had a week off and she was going into a cupcake shop every single day to get a cupcake and they recognized her and they were like, you come in here a lot. Would you tweet about this cupcake and we'll give it to you for free? And she was like, who the fuck do you think I am that I can't afford a $2 cupcake and I'm just shilling out free promo? So she said she stopped eating cupcakes because she was so insulted and now she eats donuts. That does seem dramatic. <laughs> yeah. She's like, first of all, I'm allowed to come in to get cupcakes. Second of all, I don't need your free cup. But I'm just kind of like, I don't know, man. That was just, I think, a small business hoping for some free promo. Maybe that makes you mad, but I do think a tweet costs nothing. If you genuinely like them, why not just say sure? Also, why not haggle? Be like, okay, I want a half dozen once a week. She also talks about like when she writes. Something that I really liked is she's very self-deprecating. And she does say that essentially for every one productive hour, she has to have seven. Uh, that rings true. <laughs> prepping hours. Everybody else is like, I wake up at four and I work my little butt off. And I'm, it's nice for her to be like, I don't know, I'm fucking funny. Yeah, there's a lot of stories of like I wake up and I drink my brain juice and then I juice my extra juice out of my brain and then I take a power walk and then it's 5 a.m. <laughs> she's the ultimate anti-pick-me-that-girl. Yeah. 
Greg Daniels in his little eulogy of her is like Mindy Kaling has a work ethic second to none and that if there was a ladder and none was at the bottom she would be the next ladder up (laughs) and I'm like hell yeah that's us hell yeah then we get into the sex section the section the section the best distraction in the world romance and guys she writes about how she doesn't like one night stands. She says, in my mind, the sexiest thing in the world is feeling that you're wanted. And she makes a good point. But then I will say I didn't like the way she delved into like really hating one night stands because she's like, it'd be so humiliating if I got raped and murdered and then had to go to the police and they were like, well, what's his name? And you're like, I don't even know. Yeah. And they're like, well, then why was he in your house? And it felt a little slut shame me. It did feel a little slut shamey. I really respect being like, listen, one night stands are not for me and I don't do that. You don't have to be like, because they'll rape and murder me. I think you could still just like not like having sex with someone you don't know. That's very reasonable. Also, I think statistically, you're more likely to be murdered by the person you're married to. So. Oh, yeah. So they how do about that this? all the time. If you want to be safe, only have one night stands. Never settle down. Then we get into a chapter about hookups. And this is the one that I really under the, the term hookup is confusing. I what agree. does it mean? I used to get in trouble with my mom because I'd be like, oh, they hooked up when I was in high school and she would get so upset by how like casually I was referring to sex. And I'm like, ew, gross, you slut. <laughs> I'm talking about kissing. Why do you know about sex? You're my mom. Here's the thing is I always will like say funny words like boinking when I'm talking about sex. No, I say boinking. I say forking. I say porking. I say banging. I say stanging. I always say we banged. <laughs> I, always, I always go, you guys boinked? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that means sex. Make out smooch yeah yeah i see you guys do a little tonsil hockey <laughs> i wouldn't that makes me gag you guys waggle the tongues <laughs> ew, 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 ew. you guys swap spit yeah <laughs> you guys lick each other <laughs> you guys touch gums so yeah i mean i think this was a worthy aside what does it mean to hook up yeah joe biden work on something <laughs> important And then we get into the chapter called Non-Traumatic Things That Have Made Me Cry. And this I also really liked. I think that we overall are like, unless there was like a traumatic situation, you can't be upset about it. Like unless it was a big super breakup, chill out. And I think the hardest ones are the ones where you like kind of saw potential in a situation and then it peters out for no reason you can really understand. I have to say that thing you just said about like the rules of when you're allowed to cry, I think is a real Ashley specific problem. I think you have a really complicated relationship with crying. I do. I think most people are like, yeah, you could cry over these things if you wanted, but go through them. So yeah, she has this story about the promise of Evan Lieberman and it's about like a great first date she had with this really cute guy who's, they got along. The date went amazing. And so for the second date, she bought a new outfit. She got her hair done, nails done. She was so excited. She had emailed all her friends. This was back in the day before texting. And then he canceled like an hour before and she was very hurt by it. That's something that I recognized as something that's happened to me quite not quite often, but like a few times where you're like, wow. And she says, it's hard to meet someone that I would even consider spending time alone with. So it was a painful blow that it was over as quickly as it had begun. I think that I have a real ego about that type of thing where I'm like, when I really like someone, I'm like, wow, that's hard to do. Like, it's hard to win my affection in that way. So if I pick you as someone that I actually liked, how dare you blow me off? I think for me, it's the lack of trust I have in my own instincts. The idea that like, if I thought the date went well and we're going to go on a second date to find out that I judged that wrong throws me off like in every aspect of my life. I'm like, okay, so I have no self-awareness. I have no idea how things are coming across. Like I really feel destabilized beyond even just that date. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like it does hurt to be like, is my judgment fucked? Yeah. I thought that I could at least trust myself. Like you can't trust anybody besides yourself and now you can't trust yourself. 
Ouch. And she says depressing zeitgeisty magazine articles about relationships. And I know exactly what she means. She's like every few months there's a new thesis about relationships like say how women don't need men anymore. Or if you're a woman over 35, you should just settle with whatever guy is halfway nice to you. Or how monogamy is not feasible or plausible or enjoyable for any human being. And we should all be swingers. Got or it. a studies released that says you don't have to love your children anymore or something. Like if she thought it was bad then, the level right now that I've been seeing it, the article is about orbiting and ghosting. And there's like always these new terms. And every single magazine and like women's platform picks it up being like the new dating term you need to know about. Hedgehogging. And you're like, what the fuck? And it's like, that's where they pop up every now and then, like a hedgehog. And you're like, stop giving it new words. Anyway, and then she talks about other things that make her cry. Mark Darcy, I get it. Charlie Brown Christmas, I get it. She quotes that line from Bridget Jones's diary where he says, I like you very much just as you are. She goes, it's ridiculous that I love this so much. It's so simple. It's not a witty, perfectly phrased Efrani declaration by our charming neurotic hero. It's so plain. But the idea is the most beautiful thing in the world. So obviously it makes me cry. I agree. That does I agree. That is a good movie. Fucking good. Joni Mitchell's Blue and If My Mom Cries. Yep. And then she has a chapter called Men and Boys where she talks about the difference between men and boys. And it's like, I mean, it's kind of what you could guess. I would say it's not particularly groundbreaking. Men know what they want. Men make concrete plans. Men own alarm clocks. Men sleep on a mattress that isn't on the floor. Men tip generously. Men buy new shampoo instead of adding water to a nearly empty bottle of shampoo. I'm a boy. Men go to the dentist. Men make reservations. And then she says, boys are adorable. Boys trail off their sentences in an appealing way. Boys bring a knapsack to work. Boys can pick up their whole life in a duffel bag and move to Brooklyn for a gig if they need to. Boys have gigs. I love this one. Boys don't know how to adjust their conversation when they're talking to their friends or your parents. They put parents on the same level as their peers and roll their eyes when your dad makes a terrible pun. Boys let your parents pay for dinner when you all go out. It's assumed. Yeah. But what I do like about this chapter is she's like, I'm 32 and I have to date men. Yeah. That's where I'm at. It's hard because I don't know any. Yeah. And she's like, it is like for a really long time. I like boys, but I have to say I'm a fucking adult and I need to start dating adults. And then she gets to a chapter called Married People Need to Step It Up. And this I really liked. This resonated. This was an Ashley. This was an Ashley chapter. She says, as an adult, I've met an ocean of divorced people. I might even know more divorced people than married people because I live in godless Los Angeles, where if you're engaged, it simply means you're publicly announcing that you're dating a person monogamishly. And she talks about the way married couples are constantly talking about how hard it is how hard marriage is and she's like just be married or don't like stop complaining about marriage all the time talking about like the constant effort that it is she says that the people who she thinks have the best marriages are people who are pals and they're just buddies and they like each other and they spend time together but I will say the couples she references are her parents and Amy Poehler and Will Arnett who have since divorced. Yeah, that's problematic. She talks about how her parents are pals because they like doing things together and they can talk about stuff. And then she goes, but note, they are pals, not best friends. My mom's best friend is her sister. A best friend is someone you can talk ad nauseum about feelings, clothing, and gossip. My dad is completely uninterested in that. Yes. And she says, I just don't want to hear about the endless struggles to keep sex exciting and to hear how hard marriage is. I think happiness can come in a bunch of forms and maybe a marriage with tons of work makes people feel happy. But part of me thinks, is it really so hard to make it work? What happened to being pals? I'm not complaining about romance being dead. I've just described a happy marriage as based on talking about plants and a canceled Ray Romano show and drinking milkshakes. Maybe the point is that any marriage is work, but you may as well pick work that you like. Married people, it's up to you. It's entirely on your shoulders to keep this sinking institution afloat. It's a stately old ship and a lot of people like me want to get on board. Please be psyched and convey that psychness to us. And always remember, so many, many people are envious of what you have. You're the star at the end of the Shakespearean play wearing the wreath of flowers in your hair. 
Yeah, this is the thing I always talk about. I'm so sick of the way couples bicker and gripe at each other in public. It's like, don't be together then. I don't know. I don't think you have to be in a relationship if you don't want to be. So if you're in a relationship where you're constantly just like mad at each other, probably not it. Yeah, she says the people mm-hmm. she knows that are divorced are infinitely happier than the people she knows that are in hard work relationships. Okay, and then we get to the body section. And this chapter is called When You're Not Skinny, This Is What People Want You To Wear. And it's about being on like a people's most beautiful list and being at this photo shoot. She was quite honored to be there. And she gets there and the only garment they have in her size is like an ugly navy dress. And she hates the color navy. She says it's like a very thin-lipped spinster aunt color, which... I mean, I am currently wearing navy, but I don't disagree. (laughs) And then she says, I excused myself by saying I needed to use the bathroom, which since we were shooting in an elementary school was the same one the kids used during the day. I went into a stall, sat down on a kid-sized toilet and cried. Why didn't I just lose 20 pounds so I never had to be in this situation again? Life was so much easier for actresses that did that. Was my problem that I was this food monster destined to only wear navy shifts? Lots of stupid people were skinny, and yet I couldn't do this incredibly simple thing that they could do with seeming ease. This is a really important chapter, I think, because I think a lot of people are very critical of celebrities who like go through this as soon as they become successful, they like whittle down. And I think that there are these pressures that we don't even think about, like showing up on a set and not having cute clothes that fit you because the stylists don't bring sizes. We saw that with Portia de Rossi Mm -hmm. hugely that so much of what contributed to her eating disorder was showing up to the stylist who would like be vicious to you if you fit into like a double zero. And I'm sure that they've gotten, I'm not sure that they've gotten more sensitive. I I hope that they've gotten better now about bringing size inclusive options and like finding out the size of the person they're shooting. Yeah. Just ask the person what size they are. Yeah. I just don't see why they wouldn't, but I also see why they wouldn't like Hollywood is fucking dumb and sucks. And I understand why people go through these pressures. It's not like everyone's like, why can't they just be a good role model and like be true to themselves? It's so much harder than that. And I really respect Mindy for like refinding her center and what she did on this photo shoot. So she asks for this one pale pink dress that she likes and they go, it doesn't fit. And she's like, well, then alter it. And they go, the seamstress isn't here to make a major alteration. And she says, well, I don't know what to say because I just don't think I feel comfortable in anything but that. So that's when I decided to just pretend as though I somehow had the power in this weird situation where no one was the boss to end arguments, make decisions. When I played the I don't feel comfortable card, he knew it was over. I don't feel comfortable is the classic manipulative girl get my way line. It's right up there with I don't feel entirely safe. Was it fair? Nope. Was it cool? Absolutely not. But it also wasn't fair or cool for them to have brought three dozen size zero gowns to the shoot. She says in the end, they just like cut it open the back and like sewed in a fake piece of cloth and it fit perfect and she was super happy. I spent the rest of the shoot having a blast and posing goofily for photos with my pal, like the awesome, most beautiful and least dressable girl that I was. Yes. And I think that that is a really powerful thing that she was able to do to not let that moment fuck her up because I don't think I would have been that strong. And I'm like so in awe of her ability to fake absolute confidence until she's having fun. And that's kind of the end of the book. I mean, she has a couple more little gags that like what she wants at her funeral and the eulogy for Mindy Kaling by Michael Schur. I guess Michael Schur. Sorry, I've been saying Greg Daniels, but just Michael Schur, which there's nothing left that I haven't already said. But we're going to go through now and pick out some of the fun little essays. We've really torn into people for writing so many stupid bits and asides in in these books. And I think it's because a lot of them have been like deeply unfunny. And some of hers really didn't age perfectly for sure. And I think that overall, I would have liked to hear more about her life than just have little bits. But the difference between hers is that they're funny. 
I think the thing is like how much life does she even have at the point of writing? She's 32. She had been writing on the office for eight years, which I'm sure was like all encompassing. I mean, I guess she couldn't gotten more into the Bojack. I don't know what you're saying. I tried to say BJ Novak. Oh yeah. She could have And I said more. Bojack. Cause I literally cannot get through a book without fucking up a name. <laughs> But she could have written more about her relationships, I think. But she's notoriously quite private about that. So I'm not even upset about it because if she isn't talking about it ever, then like, I don't know, you know. Anyway, so one of her little aside essays is called Karaoke Etiquette. And I don't think I've ever read anything that I've agreed with harder. It's about how when you're picking a karaoke song, you're not picking a song to like show off your talents. You're picking a song that makes you essentially the DJ For three minutes. You want to keep it short. You want to keep it fun. You want to keep the vibes high. And I mean, we feel this strongly. When you do karaoke, it has to be a song that everyone wants to sing. You're picking the energy of the room with that song. I mean, that's Ashley's feeling to a T. It's (sighs) not about showing off your vocal cords. It's about finding the vibe. Honestly, to my core. And I hate that I'm about to say this because I do love the Wormies so much. If you use karaoke to show off vocal range... Get out of here. Think about what you've done. So I want to get to a chapter called Best Friend Rights and Responsibilities. For almost eight years, I lived with my best friends in either a cramped college dorm room or a small Brooklyn apartment. Normally, these are the circumstances that drive one roommate to get engaged to some random guy super fast because she is so annoyed with her living situation. We managed it well, however, because we maintained an informal best friend code of contact. I've outlined most of the vital aspects here. So I would love to discuss each of these points. Okay. One, I can borrow all of your clothes. Anything in your closet, no matter how fancy, is co-owned by me, your best friend. I can borrow it for as long as I want. If I get anything on it or lose it, I should make all good faith attempts to get it cleaned or buy you a new one. But I don't need to do that, and you still have to love me. If I ruin something, you're allowed to talk shit about it for one calendar year. That's it. Then you have to get over it. The one stipulation is that you have to have worn it first. I'm not a monster. I think that asking needs to be part of it. I do think in this day and age with texting... There's never a time you can't get a hold of somebody. Yeah. I think that if you need something, you can ask. I vehemently agree with it has to be worn. You cannot take a new item out of someone's closet. I also like that you get one year to talk shit about me rule and then you have to get over it. Yeah. We sleep in the same bed. Nope. No. I must be 100% honest about how you look, but gentle. And so she's basically like, if you look like shit, I'm the only one who can tell you, but I have to be very fragile. I will employ the gentle, vague expression. I'm not crazy about that on you, which should mean to you, holy shit, take that off. That looks terrible. That's actually perfect. I agree 100%. To be like, I'm not, I'm not obsessed. I'm not obsessed. It's not my favorite thing you own. I don't love the color. (laughs) It's black. I can ditch you within reason. I can ditch you to hang out with a guy, but only if that possibility has been discussed and getting a ride home practicalities have been worked out prior to the event. In return, I need to talk about you a lot with the guy so that you know how so much I love you. I'm, I think that's spot on. Yeah, for sure. If you go to a party and I know that there's a guy you might hook up with. Find your own way home, dude. I will take care of your kid if you die, of course. <laughs> I will nurse you back to health. Yeah. Yeah. We will trade off being social activities chair for our outings. I don't think we really trade off. I think I kind of make you handle the social activities. I think that there is somebody who's naturally inclined. Yeah. I will keep your favorite feminine hygiene product in my house. This is irrelevant to us. Yeah. I will try to like your boyfriend five times. This is a fair number of times to hang out with your boyfriend and withhold judgment. This is an interesting opinion that I, I'm looking to incorporating in my life. I think that that's fair. I actually think that that's fair. I actually think five is generous. I'm going to start trying to hold myself to three. Same. And then maybe from there, I'll work my way up. Yeah. It's like a muscle. A judgment is a muscle that you have to keep at bay. I'm very, uh, what do you call it? Prone to a snap judgment. (laughs) 
When I take a shower at your place, I won't drop the towel on the floor. Your home isn't in a hotel. I forget sometimes because you make it so comfortable for me. I would never put a towel on the floor. If you're depressed, I will be there for you. If our phone conversations get disconnected, there's no need to call back. I highlighted that. That's so good. <laughs> I get it. You get it. We take forever getting off the phone anyway. This was a blessing. I agree. There have been times the phone's gone. And I'm just like, all right, see you next week. <laughs> I will hate and re-like people for you. I think this is a great one in terms of, if you guys don't know, we do an advice column once a month on the Patreon called Worm to the Wise. And we answer questions. I mean, we get a lot of like, I hate my friend's boyfriend. I think he's a bad person. I do think that even though I'm culprit number one in terms of like being mean about boyfriends, I do think we all have to strive to be like. If it was bad for a month and now it's good, I need to release that month of shit talking from my brain on your behalf if it feels like you're genuinely in a better place. Like if you're happy, I need to be happy and forget that we hated him. Or I think a situation we had a couple times in our last episode is he was a horrible hookup, but now he's a great boyfriend. Yeah. If the title has changed, you have to give him a new shot at the job. <laughs> It's okay to take me for granted. I know when you fall in love with someone that you will completely forget about me. That hurts my feelings, but it is okay. Please try to remember to text me if you can, if you know I have something going on in my life, like a work promotion or something. I mean, that's where I draw the fucking, no. We've talked about this. You get a window. Yeah. You get like, and I try to be generous. Six I think months. you get like three to six months yeah. to like really be obsessed with your boyfriend and like kind of put your friends on the back burner like an asshole. And then you have to step it up. Like you have to make specific efforts for your friends. Like you're like buying them candies again to apologize for being MIA for a little bit. Because it's okay when you're newly in a relationship to be so fucking stoked on it. Yeah. I think that this is a problem that I have in my life right now where I have a lot of friends who do feel this way though. That like yeah. one day I'll get a boyfriend and we won't be best friends anymore because I'll have a husband. And I'm like, no, that's not how I operate. I do like the last one. No two people are better than us. We fucking rock. No one can beat us. Oh, that's so fucking true. <laughs> so then she has this little section about franchises she would like to reboot, which isn't normally I would skip this if she hadn't gotten a lot of them right. So A League of Their Own, which is the best movie of all time, I think she wants to reboot. It, it was rebooted for Amazon. They're making it. Oceans 5 so she thinks that they need to do an Oceans film with less people in it she was literally in Oceans 8 that was so spot on and then Ghostbusters she says she wants there to be a girls Ghostbusters there fucking was that's crazy she has this whole section called roasts are terrible where she shits on people who do roasts and she's like I don't understand why we have to do that kind of comedy like Jeff Ross is socially funny why he can't he just be funny and nice there was part of me that was like fuck you Mindy not everybody at 24 wrote for the most successful sitcom of all time some people have to make money Jeff Ross has to do those roasts because he has to pay his mortgage but then on the yeah. very next page she has my favorite 11 moments in comedy and she talks about how she knows she'll get shit for it because she's not like a classic comedy expert she hasn't seen Caddyshack she doesn't care about some of the old grades like fuck it I love Anchorman and Bridesmaids and I'm like god yes. that's what I really appreciate about her that she doesn't care what some like old Harvard Lampoon editor thinks is good comedy she's funny she knows what makes her laugh and that's funny if it makes you laugh then it's funny and there's other people who agree studying the things that you like is studying like you're allowed to just do that you're allowed to like what you like and have your own influences and then we have this chunk called these are the narcissistic photos in my Blackberry do you remember Blackberry <laughs> Okay, so this is really important to me because I think at this time this was very taboo and like brazen to put your own favorite selfies of yourself in a book and acknowledge them. And it did send me down somewhat of a journey of remembering like the normalization of the selfie. And I was laughing, thinking about how at one point in time when people start taking selfies, you could only take mirror photos because for some reason it was socially acceptable to acknowledge that you had taken the photo yourself if the proof of that photo was within frame. It was, for some reason, 
not embarrassing to take a mirror picture, but it was humiliating to hold a camera and look at yourself. Yeah. And I think that also has to do with the fact that there was like no front facing cameras yet. So you just had to guess what you would look like. <laughs> but I do think the way that Instagram normalized it, it is just so funny to remember how far we've come in terms of taking photos of yourself. Like yeah, oh, she yeah. says in here that she would rather die than have somebody see how many selfies she has in her Blackberry. And now it's like, die, post them. Post a photo dump of 10 selfies I took this week. Only 10, 10 out of 10,000. Like I take so many fucking selfies. It's insane. Oh, and then she has a chapter about like Jewish guys and things that annoy her about Jewish guys, which I do think overall, it's just like not one that should be in here. I thought it was going to be like why she thought Jewish guys were hot or something, which I was like, whatever. That's an- kind of annoying, but it is what it is. It's like literally like Jewish guys stop being hypochondriac, stop being obsessed with your mom. I don't know. You just have a cold and it's like it could be COVID. Also, I don't know. I just I think that like to single out one group of people that you're not a part of and be like, you're a bunch of things that annoy me about you is like, yeah, dicey. And then she gets to plans for her funeral. She says that this is another one I related to. My acapella group from college will try to perform. I forgive them for trying, but this is not allowed to happen. I don't just mean the group currently singing at my college. No assembly of past members or anything is allowed to sing. You must be vigilant about this. I don't think anyone will try to sing at my funeral, but... If it should happen, I want it here set in stone. No singing. And she says, no one may use this occasion to debut original music that they wrote. I hate original music. Fucking same, dude. So in conclusion, Ashley, thoughts on Mindy? I think that this was like a fun, lighthearted book. I think it's like a very chill flip through something fun. It won't take you long. It won't make you think that hard. Yeah, I mean, you were saying it's the perfect answer for whenever someone says, oh, what should I read on the plane? This is a great plane book. I do think it's interesting the way that this has not aged poorly as Tina Fey's book. Yeah. And I do think because Tina Fey is... Punches down. Punches down a lot. And I think one of the other key differences, I said this is what Anna Kendrick wishes she had written, but it doesn't age well to be grumpy. Yeah. I have to say, like, Larry David mastered it, I guess, but that is a hard thing to be good at and likable at. And I think something that's fun about this book is it's so filled with joy. Well, just as much as this stuff she doesn't like, you also learn about the stuff she does like. She does like things, and she celebrates them wholeheartedly. And I think the thing she doesn't like, a lot of this book is not just being like, when people stand in line, that's freaking annoying. It's self-deprecating the way that she's like, I'm not athletic. Leave me alone. Or like... I like to talk about stupid things. I'm not going to watch your dumb old movies. Like, I feel like it's really in defense of being allowed to be herself, Mm -hmm. which I like. I mean, another example is she talks about how she hates when people complain about being stressed out. And at first I was like rolling my eyes, but she had a good excuse. She was like, listen, when my parents moved to the U.S., my mom was a resident even though she was a doctor, she had to do her residency all over again. She would wake up at 4 a.m., make breakfast, lunch, and dinner for all of her kids, including my dad, and go to work for like 16 hours. Meanwhile, my dad was commuting from Boston to Connecticut two and a half hours each way. And he'd have to come back in time to pick up the kids from school. And she's like, they never once complained about being stressed out. But also not even necessarily saying like this was my exact experience. But she says like when you're complaining about being stressed to other people, like what is the goal? What do you want them to say? Like, congratulations, you're the most stressed of them all. You win the most stressed trophy. Like, yeah, everybody's yeah what do you, everyone has stress in their life. You want to win? I don't know. You could just talk about other things. It is a lazy topic that I think people fall into. Like, I think the weather is a way better topic. Me the weather too. gets a lot of flack for being a bad topic. But I love weather. Weather is like a, the deeply unifying thing of us all. Yeah. So I have to say, I like this book. I want to take back my previous feelings. I feel like a, this a second reading really made me pro Mindy. 
And I think I'm going to give her a second chance in life. I like really have always kind of wanted to have a conversation with her. I think that we would not like a work conversation. I would just I think she's someone I would love to gab with. And I do really respect her career. And I think this was a comedy book written by a comedy writer. And she is a brilliant comedy writer. So thank you, Mindy. Don't forget Chicago. Don't forget our digital show. Don't forget merch. Don't forget the wormhole on Facebook. And of course, don't forget the Patreon, where we will be talking about who her baby daddy is. Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you so much to Ump19. Ump, there it is. Thank you for that beautiful review. Thank you, Alexa1098. Alexa, play the thank you song. I don't know what that is. It's just... um how I feel. Thank you, M Rose 56. You smell absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Bewitched 62892. To everyone else, I say, say la vie. But to you, I say thank you. Thank you, girl 62918 If there's fucking anyone we do it for, it's the girl. Thank you, Sleuthy Sleuth. I appreciate your investigative work. Thank you, ABBVH. I'm great. And I appreciate your initials. Thank you, Southern Girl 221. I hope someday I can buy you a sweet tea. Thank you, AI Millennial. If you told me what Harry Potter house you were in, I'd listen to you talk about it. Thank you, Olivia Bell. You are the bell of this ball. Thank you, Panda BR0515. I hope that you don't become extinct. That's all for this week. I love you guys so much, and I'll see you next week.